that people living with this disease are starving for information and they don't just want to read these care caregiver guide or the how-to by the doctors they want real stories that are written by real people who know what they're talking about and have walked the walk Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. Last week, we spoke with Margaret Zhao, who uh, grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution and who's wrote a beautiful book called Really Enough. She is now a comedian and an inspirational speaker, and she has so much wisdom to offer. And next week, we're going to be speaking with Sheila Applegate, who is a spiritual teacher, and she leads us on a long and really beautiful meditation. I hope you can join us then. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today's guest is Marianne Shuko, the author of several books in contemporary women's and young adult fiction. She's also a registered nurse and combines her love of words with insight gained from her nursing career, including themes like Alzheimer's, dementia, PTSD, opioid addiction, and chronic pain. Her titles include Blue Hydrangeas, uh, an Alzheimer's love story, Christmas at Blue Hydrangea, and Swim Season. Her award-winning work has been published in several anthologies, including the newly released Chicken Soup for the Soul, Mom Knows Best. And she's also the co-founder of All's Authors, a co- global community of writers sharing their stories to help others. Welcome to the show, Marion. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. You'll be among some of your uh, your colleagues at All's Authors. I know. We're all excited to meet with you and to talk <laughs> about All's Authors. Oh, great. Well, why don't we start? You're, you're a professional nurse, but I know um, that you've always thought of yourself as a writer. How do you kind of balance those two major parts of yourself? Yeah, when I got back to writing back in... 2002 after a hiatus while I became a nurse and a mother uh, it was very hard for me as working full-time to get much writing done and I, I was working on a book at the time and I was also working on a newsletter where I at the hospital where I worked I was coordinating that which really was a good break for me because it got me back to writing and I managed to complete a novel in about a year and a half while working full-time and then I lost my job because of disability mm-hmm. and I didn't write for um, years a long time before I started to do a new project I'd say about uh, three four years maybe and then as I started to recover and feel better and I had plenty of time on my hands 
I started writing again and now I work part-time and I write part-time or part-part-time I should say. So the writing has always been with you even though it's been on the back burner during different phases of your life? Exactly. I, I think a lot of writers are like that. They don't um, always, are, they're not always in a good place to get their work done, but that doesn't mean things aren't germinating in, in our brains. And a big part of writing happens in, in your head. So um, when you do have time and opportunity to sit down and write, now that's when the words can pour out. I know that when uh, you were deciding at a younger age what career to have, the nursing drew you in because it's financially, one of the things that's good about it is, you know, nursing never goes out of style or out of business, and it's been a good financial choice for you. Did you imagine when you became a nurse that you'd be using so much of your experience to uh for your for your work as a writer i think i did because i always considered it to be in the, the front row seat in the theater of life because you see many incredible things happening to people sometimes being involved with people during some of the most dramatic traumatic experiences in their life and i was very attuned to that and i cared so i would pick up on a lot and be involved or as involved as I could and a lot of that stayed with me and I'm able to use it in my writing. So what is it like if you're caring for a patient for example who's having a, a really extreme health crisis do you kind of put it away and think oh I have to remember to use this they they said something that was really profound do you go in the break room and jot things down How, what's the process no I, I didn't do any of that I just kind of rem happened to remember it. it's in my memory and a lot of the things I come up with are a composite of many different people or different situations so it isn't mm -hmm. any one particular thing, although the main characters in Blue Hydrangeas are a couple I met in my work, and many of the things about you them tell us a, I used in my story. Uh, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that story and how it related to your patients? So uh, uh, Blue Hydrangeas is an Alzheimer's love story, and I was inspired by this uh, very lovely couple I met. The woman, she was 86, and she had Alzheimer's. She was beautiful and, and adorable and very charming. And her husband, he was probably older than her and not well on a physical point of view. And when I met them, they just charmed me. And their story charmed me because they had driven all the way from Florida State up to New York by themselves without having any kind of a problem until they got home. And that's where I came in. She was in rehab because she had broken her pelvis, and we were going to move her to a local facility to continue her rehab. And I was in charge of making that happen. So when I met them, um, their son was there, and he said, you know, let me, I'll bring them to the place. You don't need to arrange your transportation. And that was fine. And then I began wondering later on, well, what would happen if those people were to leave the hospital without their son? Where would they go? What would they do? And so that's how I ended up coming up with the whole story of 
Jack mm -hmm. and Sarah and their sojourn on Cape Cod. That's where that story takes place. And where did you get the title, Blue Hydrangeas? <laughs> well, I love the Blue Hydrangeas, and they have them all over the Cape. And I tried to grow them at my house in New York, and they don't want to be blue here. Right. And I was thinking about my characters. At the time, I had decided they owned a bed and breakfast. They were innkeepers, so they need to come up with a name for their house. What would they call it? And I thought of the Blue Hydrangeas, and I said, oh, she's got blue hydrangeas lining her drive all the way up to her house, and that's what they're going to call it, blue hydrangeas. Mm -hmm. And people really like that, and I like that. And every time I go to the Cape, I try to see if there is a place called Blue Hydrangeas, but there's not. There's this weaving in, it sounds like, from bits and pieces from, uh, at least for some of your books, from your nursing career, from your own preferences, from just making things up. It sounds like it's just this tapestry that you put together. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. I use up a lot mm -hmm. of different elements, you know, from my own life. And then there's a lot of research because I wrote a book about Alzheimer's. And mm -hmm. I had to research and make sure that what I thought I knew was accurate. And as it took years for me to publish it, so I had to re-research it because things had changed. Oh, so I needed I to make see. sure I was up, up to date. So, yeah, it was at least seven or eight years in the making, so... I re-researched it at the end just to be sure. So that stuff, you know, can't can't make that up. When you were looking for a publisher, did you find that people were interested in a love story about Alzheimer's? No. That was one of the worst experiences of my life because I sent out a whole stack of inquiries to literary agents and editors and I got a lot of rejections back not one person read my book ah so yeah it, that hurts it's one thing if somebody reads your book and decides for whatever reason or not that it's not right for them but no, nobody ever read the book so I was very discouraged and a friend of mine said why don't you publish on Kindle because she had done that and it worked for her she was doing well so I figured what what have I got to lose I'll put it on the Kindle and we'll see what happens. And it took me about a year and I published the book. And then the next thing I know, people start leaving reviews on Amazon talking about how much they enjoyed it and how it was spot on and they appreciated it and it was their story. So I said, oh, I, I, guess I, I guess I did all right. That's so interesting that the people who are supposed to be evaluating this work to think, you know, are people going to read it? Is it going to be, you know, resonating with people said, no, not interested. But the actual readers really liked it. There's a disconnect there. Oh, yeah. Um, what we, what I learned and what is the basis of my organization, Al's Authors, is that people living with this disease are starving for information. And they don't just want to read these characters caregiver guide or the how-to by the doctors. They want real stories that are written by real people who know what they're talking about and have walked the walk. And mm -hmm. that particular book, it fit that niche. That's how I wrote it. It's written as a novel and um, it's written from the male's perspective because most caregivers people assume are women 
but I had worked with so many men who were wonderful, loving caregivers for their wives that I wanted to do something for that. So I, that's why it's a male uh, caregiver in that story. So it's very intentional. You you just weren't writing a story that was interesting and compelling and well written. You really wanted to serve a function with this book. Yes, it was a book to demonstrate what this is all about, but in a story form. So you can follow them. It starts out in in the beginning. There's like a prologue where they get their di- the day they get the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And it's in the winter, and there's a s- snowing out, and they're sitting in front of the fire. And I describe that scene as being they've now they have now entered the winter of their marriage, and like they know this, something major has changed in mm-hmm. the foundation of their relationship, and they both know it, but they have different concerns. So um, her concern is that he will, you know don't leave me, please don't leave me with this. And he says, I will never leave you. We're staying right here. And that's his promise to her. They're going to stay there in their home, their bed and breakfast. And anybody who's lived through that scenario knows that's a very hard promise to keep. Yes, yes, indeed. Hi, Zestful Agers. I'll be attending the International Federation of Aging's 15th Global Conference on Aging in November of 2020. And if you're interested in improving your understanding of age-friendly environments, debating solutions to address inequalities, confronting the reality of ageism, and delving into what it means to enable the functional ability of an older person, head over to ifa2020.org to find out more. There's an early bird special on until the end of the year, so take advantage and join me in Niagara Falls. I'll see you there. Do you think writing has helped you as a nurse seeing so many uh, painful situations, health crises, and having to deal with that professionally? Has writing also helped you as a nurse? Well, I think the fact that I would be very cognizant of what the people would be going through. For me, it wasn't always just that I had to complete this list of tasks and go on. I was interested Mm -hmm. in the people. And not because I wanted to write about them, I just was. And I think that the reason I was is as a writer, I am interested in everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm paying attention. I pay attention. And I see things other people don't see. And that's what I think makes for a good writer. So even though I'm, you know, somebody else be doing, you know, the prior person ahead of me did the job, but they might not have taken anything away from it. They just did their job. Mm -hmm. The two things really complement each other, the two careers as a writer and a nurse. It turns out that it does, although I would never have thought of that at the time. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. kind of funny. Um, It gives a body of knowledge that, you can use it in a lot of different ways, especially in fiction, but in nonfiction as well. And uh, I, you know, led me to my mission with the Alzheimer's and dementia problem. 
and I am able to use both of my sets of skills with that. So I'm happy about that. Talk a little but, bit about All's, All's Authors for our listeners who haven't uh-huh. heard uh, my other podcasts with your colleagues. All right. All, allsauthors.com is uh, a global organization of writers who write about their own uh, Alzheimer's and dementia experiences. And we, the reason for that is to help lift the stigma off of these diseases uh, and get people to talk and to share so that everybody is, is of an understanding as to how deep this problem goes. And we started out in uh, 2015, I reached out to an author who's had two parents with dementia at the same time and asked her if she would be interested in collaborating with me to help raise awareness of Alzheimer's disease, but but also of our own books. Is this and the author she, of Alzheimer's Daughters? Yes, Al- it Alzheimer's is. Doc- Jean uh-huh. Lee, Alzheimer's okay. Daughter. She was yes. my first. And I said, do you know anyone else? And she said, oh, I know Vicki Topier. She wrote Somebody Stole My Iron. So Vicki had also gone through having two parents with dementia at the same time. Mm. And yeah, that's, that's the two of them is crazy. And we, she at first was a little skeptical. She said, why do I want to promote another author's book? Everybody kind of views it as being in competition with each other. But we said, yeah. no, we're not really in competition with each other because all the books, they're different and it will serve a different reader, you know, and plus a reader is probably going to want to read more than one book about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So we got her to sign on and, and we had a, We ran a campaign for the month of June, which is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, and that was fun. And then in November, we said, let's get back together for Caregiver Appreciation Month. So we did that, and by then another person had joined us, Shannon Wirtzbiski. And then the next thing we know, in in June of 16, we have a website. We're blogging every week. Every week we have a new author and a new book, and they're talking about their books and the experiences that they've had that led them to write their books. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we're trying to do is create a collection of books about Alzheimer's and dementia that have been vetted because we've all not we've all reviewed the books. We don't all review each book, but whoever brings the author in has re- reviewed that book. Quality so control. <laughs> exactly. We make sure that it meets our standards, and not every book that comes our way does. But we choose the best of the best, and we have, you know, all the different scenarios that exist, or at least as we could find, so that people who are looking for these kinds of books have one place to go where they can peruse the shelves and see all the different titles and, and genres and situations to find one that would work for them. So it's a lot more comprehensive than just going to Amazon and typing in Alzheimer's disease, because then you get everything. I see. And we categorize in our bookstore according to the subject matter. So if you're caring for a spouse or a grandparent, you're going to find books that reflect that. I see. What's it been like to have all's authors as part of your, your life? This is something completely unexpected and will probably be the crowning achievement in my life. Ah. I am amazed at what we've managed to accomplish with all of us coming from different backgrounds. Nobody in business, Catherine um, Harrison has a marketing background, you know, um, 
Jean is a school teacher. Vicky, she's a lact was a lactation consultant. Mm -hmm. I'm a nurse, mm -hmm. and you know, one of us. Anne is a newspaper editor. She she did newspaper work. Irene did some work, uh, I think, in the business field. Irene Olson. I just Olson. Yeah, she was an ombudsman um, mm -hmm. in her state. So she she's got a lot of work in long term care and things. But none of us, you know, ever did anything like this website, and that in and of itself was a huge undertaking. But then we kept growing, and we got to a point now where people come to us. We don't even have to look anymore. And hopefully that will that will stay the same. But we brought in about 200 authors already, and we've built a little community online. We all help each other, share our stories, tweet each other's books, all of that. We run sales. And we recently published an anthology from our first year's post. It's called Alzheimer's and Dementia Caregiving Stories. It's 58 personal stories. Mm -hmm. um, which is in paperback and digital book and now coming soon an audio book. And that was great. And then in November last year, the six of us, we went to Chicago for a conference and met for the first oh, time. my goodness. That was incredible. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I remember saying, you're real. You guys are real. I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe there was some kind of crazy reality where none of us existed <laughs> except in our online. <laughs> now you're flesh. Oh, I can imagine that. It was that, so exciting. It must have been so lovely. It was really terrific. Um, Anne and Jean and Vicky had met the year before, but Never all six of us, and not not me. Although we, we meet with each other regularly online, we do Skype and Google Hangouts, and uh, we use a Slack these are app. Your to communicate. These are your people, right? These are oh, your yeah. people. It's crazy how you know they tell you no, no never go to meet somebody uh, that you met on the internet. Oh, I was like, yeah. oh, I flew to Chicago to meet people I met on the internet. <laughs> That's what they tell you not to do. Isn't that funny? Oh, God. But you were going to a conference, right? It's not like you were yes. meeting in some no, shady... We went, uh... No, we <laughs> went to the conference. Oh, we had a lovely time. Lovely. And so that now we was have to... sponsored, right? You had some sponsorship for the conference. We did. We got some sponsorship to pay for us, for our authors to be there mm -hmm. as an organization. And that was very lovely and mm -hmm. wonderful. And that was one of our all's authors who who made that possible. She can wants to be anonymous. Oh. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, Marianne, how, I mean, you had a really wonderful career in the hospital, and all of a sudden you're facing your own disability. Can you talk a little bit how you got yourself through that? what I imagine was a pretty rough period? So I've had my disability since 2006, so we're going on to 13 years, which is a very long time. And at first when I started having my symptoms, I didn't really think a lot of it. I was too busy, and I love what I did. But what I was doing in my work was very dangerous and caused me irreparable harm. And uh, what I did was I had a, a job going around to all the floors, all the nursing floors, and doing chart review in real time. And the hospital gave us laptops that they put on these rubber-made 
um, utility carts. They weren't computer carts. They didn't really have the kind of computer carts that you see now that are ergonomically mm -hmm. adjusted and all that. At the okay. time when I did this, which was in 2004 or five, they, those things, they didn't really have them. So we had these foolish carts, and they also had a big printer on them. And we would push these all over the place, go through all, you know, all the floors and up and down the building, reviewing these medical records. Often we didn't have a place to sit. You have to just grab a chair wherever you could, whatever chair you found. And next thing I know, I start having numb hands when I wake up at night. So that was a little odd. And one day I'm at work, and one of my doctor friends came around the corner and saw how I was working. And he said to me, if you keep working like that, you're going to end up with disability. And I laughed. Mm. And I said, no, you're kidding. Oh, no, no, no. Well, the next thing I know, I have really severe pain in my right arm. So I saw him, and I said, I think I have to come and see you. So he ended up diagnosing me with thoracic outlet syndrome, which most people have never heard of. I had never heard of it. And I reviewed medical records for a living. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't even know where the thoracic outlet was. It wasn't in my anatomy and physiology textbook. So it's, in, it's a pretty obscure spot, but it's very mm -hmm. important. So the, the thoracic outlet is in um, the area between your clavicle and your first rib. And all of the blood vessels and nerves that come down from your head and neck pass through this and go down your arm all the way to your fingertips. And if it becomes constricted, it impairs blood flow, and it impairs the nerve. Oh, wow. And it can cause severe nerve damage. It can cause uh, vascular damage. And um, things like carpal tunnel, which most people are familiar with, yes. is caused by that. And then different kinds of tendonitis in like the elbow and the shoulder, bursitis, rotator cuff problems, bad neck problems, headaches. So I had developed all of that over about a year or so, just worse, 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 worse. So finally the solution was to have a surgery where they would um, remove one of the ribs, the first rib, which I thought was pretty barbaric. I never heard of that happening before. And I ended up having to go out on disability at that time and thinking I would come back, and I never went back to that job. And it took me uh, years to recover. Um, so you were talking about um, this, is it a repetitive uh, injury? Yes. Is that what it is? Oh, it's it a, is. It's classified wow. as one of the repetitive strain injuries. Repetitive strain injuries. It's wow! A so obscure. you really—it sounds, but it sounds like it's—it's it's very involved and quite dangerous. Yeah, it's—it's it's really scary when your hands turn black because they have lack of blood flow. It, that's not a good sign. I had my oh, and it came upon, came upon pretty quickly, or yeah, um, it did, and it was like the layers of an onion where there were so many problems that they had to address each one before they could go to the next. Oh, so it my took goodness. years. And then the doctor told me it, it took, uh, every, the nerves took one, they healed at the rate of one inch per month. So I thought my arm was like 27 inches, so it took 27 months oh. at minimum to heal. Oh, my goodness. That was, and I had so, done both sides. Oh. 
How did you get through that? Oh, it was a very dark time. Um, I was unemployed. So I lost my whole sense of identity as, you know, a nurse, as the case manager or whatever I was doing. And um, I couldn't write. The job you love. The job I love. Oh. The greatest benefits in the world. Never going to get that again. Um, well, it was really hard. Um, people forgot about me. So in the first mm. weeks that I was out, I would hear from people. But then as it went on and people forgot all about me, that was very sad. And um, I had my daughter. She was still in, in school. She was at middle school. So I was very busy with her. She was a swimmer. And I spent most of our, you know, most of my time with her. And that helped a lot during the time. And eventually, mm -hmm. I was able to start writing again. And that really helped pull me and so through. Could, I see. So were you able to use a keyboard? Or how did you yeah, manage? Yeah, I usually use the keyboard mm -hmm. um, like for short periods of time. But the device that really changed everything was the smartphone. Once I, I got see. my smartphone, I could do a whole lot more because it didn't, you know, I... I it's in a much different position than a laptop or a desktop. So I can change my position easily and, you know, just put it down when I start to feel too much pressure or strain. So that really changed a lot of things because I could email, I could be on social media, networking. You could write, a, you could write on it. You, people actually publish sure. direct from their phone, which is amazing. But I don't do that. But I managed to get... So is that, uh, is that when you wrote Swim Season? Yes, Swim Season. I wrote a couple mm -hmm. of short stories, and then I wrote Swim Season. That took five years to write that book. Mm -hmm. I'm a very slow writer. You hear about these people, they write a I book see. a month, but that's not me. I wish. Oh, my I goodness. <laughs> I, I haven't heard of those oh, yeah. people, but wow. They're out there. But so, um, I... Mm -hmm. uh, I I have a lot of time to write, but I can't use the time to write because then it causes pain. So I just have to, every day I, I do a little bit that I can. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, my, when you have chronic pain, it's a little part-time job trying to keep everything in check all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, we... We have people who are at this phase of life and they're wondering what's next for them. Many of them are empty nesters and they're trying to figure out, okay, I know I have, I have many miles left, um, but things are really changing. Many transitions, many questions. Do you have any thoughts about what what uh, the first steps might be to help some of our listeners answer those questions? Um, it's funny, you asked me that question I was speaking earlier with my brother and he just wrote a book and, he, and he's, he's funny because he, he's afraid to publish his book, he's afraid about um, the attention that it's going to get from the media. And I said, you don't have to worry about that <laughs> because the media is not going to be looking at you. So uh, my advice is for people to just do what they want to do. You figure out what is it that I want to do and set about making it happen for yourself, regardless of what other people are going to think or what they're going to say. If you can do it and you have the means and that's not going to impose a hardship on anyone, 
them regardless of what it is. If you want to learn how to dance or you want to learn how to breed dogs or write a book or volunteer someplace, then you should do it. You should do it. We don't know how much time we have, so why why wait? Why wait? Right. And I didn't think I would ever write again because it was so painful. And then one day I said to myself, no matter what I do, it's going to hurt me. So I'm going to do what I want to do. Why am I going to do something I don't really want to do? It's still going to hurt me. I'm doing what I want to do. And it led me to helping to create Al's Authors and all of my beautiful friends there. And that's been a gift. If I had just sat home and felt sorry for myself and said, I can't do this, then... You know, I would, I would, I would still be watching Law and Order. I watched every episode they ever made five times. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what yeah. you do when when you well, can't I think do that's anything. That's great advice. You watch TV and you don't live life. Right, you watch somebody else's life. Yeah, it's not even real. <laughs> but I, I managed to go beyond that only because I wanted to try to be as happy as I was going to be, even though I had to deal with these problems and lost my job that I loved. And, you know, I feel like the world is going on without you. It's easy Mm -hmm. to, it's easy to be sad and to sit in some hole somewhere. But eventually after I had had all the surgeries and, and all the therapies that I, that were available to me, there was nothing more. I said, I I need to either get up and and start living my life again, or or I'm just going to, rot here and when I was a nurse I used to see a lot of people who were disabled and they let it get the best of them and I said I don't want to be like that yep some days it gets the best we're glad you took yeah you know they're always bad you know the the days that aren't so great and you know you get through those days but tomorrow is a different day and, and you might be able to get a lot done so I just focus on that. I like your advice. Why wait? I think that's great advice. Yeah, you wait for the feel better tomorrow. Thanks so much for telling us about your inspiration and how you developed all's authors and your crowning achievement. Oh, Appreciate you being with me. us today. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. And next week, we're going to be speaking with Sheila Applegate who is a spiritual teacher, and she leads us on a long and really beautiful meditation. I hope you can join us then. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses, and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.